Self-doubt lives within most people. And that doubt in many ways can be positive when one understands themselves. Then I think a level of doubt can be a strength. People that can negotiate with their doubt, can harness that doubt into something positive, I think can be really healthy. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. So I've realized I have a bias that I didn't know I have. And it's one I imagine a lot of you listening have too. And this bias can be summed up in the question I was thinking to myself, which is, what does a successful, rich, white guy in tech know about self-doubt? Surely this is the most confident, self-assured breed of person on earth. Well, today's guest is Richard Harshman, or Rick, as he's often known, and you'll hear me ask him this very question today. Over the past few years, Rick has headed up major tech firms in the Asia-Pacific region. He's been managing director at Google Cloud, at UiPath, and Amazon Web Services, AWS for short. I've been lucky enough to meet Rick in person a couple of times and always thought he was brilliant, super switched on, intelligent. It would never have occurred to me to approach him for this podcast, given the themes we talk about. But it was when I was explaining the concept of tiger therapy and that I want to explore self-doubt and limiting beliefs to my boss, Tiger Hall CEO Nelly Wartoft, that Nelly almost immediately said, you have to speak to Rick Harshman. So let's find out why. Okay, Rick, why do you think you were the first person Nelly thought of when I told her about tiger therapy? Uh, You know, I've been thinking about that a bit in you know, I was asked to spend time with Nellie in a mentoring capacity uh, by her coach. And, and as I spent time with her, it became pretty apparent to both of us that there were a lot of similarities between both of us. You know, things such as you know, competitive family environment, wanting to have a say in our own path, determination, drive, caring for something bigger than us. These are kind of was a running thread in our conversations that we'd have with each other. I just thought that, you know, for Nelly, I think that's one of her superpowers, but that can also lead to things such as burnout or worse. And so what kind of helped connect us is I shared my story with her of, you know, what I kind of find to be a 30 year plus ongoing battle with doubt and self-doubt. Okay. So after Nelly said this, I must admit, I had a very biased thought, which was, you're a successful, rich white man in tech. What do you know about self-doubt? <laughs> well, uh, yes, I am a white man in tech. That is very true. You know, it's important, though, to remember that a lot of my career, nearly 20 years, have been based in Asia, you know, where I had to learn new cultures, I had to adapt to how the world works out here. 
uh, from a cultural perspective, from a business perspective, socially, 2004 Singapore is not 2024 Singapore. And much of Asia was still feeling the effects of the Asian financial crisis. The year before SARS had really devastated Singapore and Hong Kong, you know, and tech, quite frankly, was not what it is today. In fact, many countries didn't have true internet access. It's just commonplace now. And all of the gleaming buildings across the major capitals were being built from Marina Bay to the fort in Manila to Gargan in India. That that did not really exist in 2004. There was a beautiful golf course and nothing else. When I first went there in 2004, now it's a bustling metropolis. And so 20 years ago, business in general was very male-dominated, as you mentioned, and even then, very hierarchical, very top-down. But that is changing. You know, the startup ecosystem is helping with that. Younger generations coming up in family-run companies, they're changing of the guard. Tech in general, I think, has helped a lot with this. And cloud computing, which I've been very fortunate to be at the forefront of, was a great technological equalizer. And you combine that with low interest rates and VC funds and incubators being set up out here. Now, a lot of that helped create a community that did not exist 20 years ago. So it's important for people to remember that. And it's also important to remember the impact that family has in an Asian context. You're from the UK, I'm from the US. And while family is important, it is also a very individualistic society. That's not the case in Asia. You know, parents and grandparents have significant influence. And 20 years ago, you were meant to go down a path of doctor, lawyer, and maybe finance or banker. You know, tech was not respected, maybe IBM. But you fast forward to today, that perception has changed. You know, when schools are emphasizing STEM and computer science, and that will accelerate with AI. And so all of that has really changed. And, and the last thing I want to say about that is that, you know, there is much more female representation today than there was when. I first came out here. Is it where it needs to be? By no means. You know, there's a lot that still needs to be done. But I think with tech, especially, that has been helping to kind of level the playing field a bit. And so there's just been a lot of change. And so, yeah, I can't get away that I am, you know, white male, but I also had to, you know, rapidly adapt as well to be able to have a modicum of success out here. <laughs> there's a perception though, right? I feel quite embarrassed that that was my perception, but... But there you go. Well, I think it's fair. You have to be able to recognize the levels of privilege that, that one has. And it is a privilege in the society of the way it's been shaped over a number of years. If you are a white male, right, there's no doubt. And, and it would be cynical of me to say otherwise. But it is also important to provide the context, at least in my individual case, of you know, 20 plus years out here, how adaptable one would have to be to be able to build and grow businesses and build and grow teams and followership if you didn't have that level of adaptability. Mm. You know, so you mentioned the the cultural element of it. And actually, so obviously, since I started this podcast, I've been doing a lot of research in regard to self-doubt, self-esteem, imposter syndrome. And what I found quite interesting is just how in different parts of the world, it shows up very differently. So the US, probably not very surprising, is a very confident country. I think it's ranked sixth in the world in terms of self-confidence and self-esteem. And what I thought was really interesting is that four out of the five lowest 
self-confidence countries or Asian countries. I think, it, I think it's Japan. Japan have the, has the lowest levels of self-esteem in the world. Singapore is actually not in the lowest five, but lower than the global average. Well, I think, again, like I said, my kids are, are Singaporean and American, and they have a, an interesting mix. And many of their friends have an interesting mix of that, that confidence. I wouldn't say it's humility. It is, there's a level of, you know, you see the quiet confidence. And culturally, you are meant to be, you're not meant to be the tall poppy right? You meant to kind of just, you know, not stand out, you know, do well, be respectful. These are all really important traits. And if I think back, you know, I'm a big fan of history. If you think back, hopefully I'll be able to tell a bit of my origin story. And I think about people that I have admired, um, that I've either known personally or that I've read about, you know, there's this kind of recurring theme of humility and where they were brought up and raised. And I do think that that used to be the case a few generations ago in the UK and the US and some of the Western nations. And I think the individual aspects have really started to dominate more. And I think this is just my opinion, but I think social media has compounded that where, you know, you're the main character of your life and thus everyone else around you is just part of, you know, a set of a movie. That's not the case out here. And I think that that's really important to be able to recognize. And that's not that people aren't proud and that they don't have confidence. They do, but it shows up in different ways. And I found some of the most passionate, driven, and competitive people across Asian cultures, but they're not boastful about it. Mm. And I think that that's the difference. You know, there's a lot of pride. I mean, you just look at the India cricket team. They're extremely, there's a lot of pride and a lot of national pride behind that, but they're not out beating their chest, you know, but if you watch, you know, <laughs> an English Premier League match or you watch a U.S. football game, you know, it's all about the individual and it's not the front of the shirt, it's what's on your back. And that that's not even a subtle nuance. That's a big difference. And, and it's important to be able to recognize that. Interesting. Yeah. So you just mentioned origin story. I'd love to hear about your background, where you grew up and how you think that's shaped you. Yeah, you know, it's one of these things where I always jokingly say to people that, you know, I'm the basketball version of an army brat. You know, my dad was a basketball coach, a college basketball coach. My grandfather was a basketball coach. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to see greatness up close. My dad coached Magic Johnson in college. They won a national championship. And, you know, my grandfather is in the Worldwide Basketball Hall of Fame. You know, he coached the U.S. basketball team. It was just a very cool life. And he had this amazing, quiet confidence, you know, and he was always my idol. And I felt very lucky to have the grandparents that I had on both sides uh, of my family and my mom's side and my dad's side. But underlying this, as I've thought about my life and as I've gotten older, and I think maybe having kids and, and, you know, building and leading teams, you know, to, to have a bit of perspective underlying all of this, you know, I always felt a tremendous amount of pressure that I had to be great as well. Uh, you know, my grandfather had been an amazing athlete, as had my dad. They were both successful in their careers, and they were also in the public eye. And it's a type of situation back then. I grew up in the Seattle area, and, you know, you would – a type of situation where you go into a restaurant, and there would be instant recognition, you know, and people would be whispering. But as I said, with that age and distance, I can appreciate it. But when I was young, I wanted to hide. You know, I wanted to be invisible. I did not want the attention. You know, when I think about it, was some of it in my head? Uh, of course it was, you know, but it also has been with me for nearly 40 years. And so, you know, I think about things in my life when I wasn't good enough to play college basketball or I didn't pursue 
a career of what people thought that I should, that just fed into that doubt. And even today, you know, nearly 30 years after high school, like the last time I played a competitive basketball game, my dad will still talk about a game of what I could have done differently. And that's like 30 years ago. And I've gone down a completely different path. So from very young, I always felt that I had to be the best. You know, I was always the front of the line going to an assembly. I was always sat at the front of the class. I felt like I had to work harder than anyone. And that doubt, I think for a long time, actually I was able to turn into some kind of superpower. But when you get hit sideways or when you become a leader and you can't push others the way you push yourself, you have to adapt or it won't last. And that's what a lot of my journey has been about is trying to better understand myself where that doubt came from and what was driving that doubt. And that's what I continue to work through. That's so interesting. It's just our families played the biggest part in all this, right? We actually, the other week we recorded with Tim Shriver, who I don't know if you know who he is. He's from the Kennedy family. Yeah. And one of the things that he said which I thought was so interesting, I'm very grateful that he opened up about this, was growing up in such a famous, competitive political family just always makes you feel like you're not doing enough. It's like, this is this has impacted me, this has impacted my cousins, is what he was saying, just impacted him a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think I couldn't even imagine being part of the Shriver-Kennedy family. I mean, I would imagine you almost feel duty-bound. And I can imagine that that is very similar in some of these, whether it's a political dynasty or whether it's family-run businesses. And I guess what I would say is throughout my life, I have found that in my experience, self-doubt lives within most people if we really think about it. And that doubt in many ways can be positive, as I said, that I think it was in many cases for me. And that is positive. It can be positive when one understands themselves. You know, they know themselves. Then I think a level of doubt can be a strength. You know, people that can negotiate with their doubt, that they can harness that doubt into something positive, I think can be really healthy. However, as I said, and, and I have a number of examples where I think I was very close to burnout. I was very close to losing friends and family of just going down a path that wasn't positive or healthy. And I think that self-doubt was a, a big part of that drive, um, but that can actually lead you down some bad areas. But, you know, I do see it in all walks of life. You know, when someone is trying something new or is fresh out of university or eager to grow, to be successful, doubt can absolutely be a driver to push oneself to achieve their goals. So it can be positive, but it also has to be balanced. And that's what I've found as I've gotten older. Yeah, I completely agree that self-doubt can be a very positive thing if, if used correctly. But just on what you mentioned about how you had almost a destructive period. I'm not sure if destructive is the right word, but you and I had a, a chat a couple of weeks ago ahead of this. And one of the things you had said was that earlier in your career, the way you worked was, it was all about execution and it was almost robotic. What do you think was driving you then? You know, I think that I've been very privileged to work at some of the best known and most successful companies in the tech space in the last, you know, 20, 25 years. I mean, really generational, you know, working for the, the pioneer in cloud computing, then the pioneer in search and still leading in cloud and in AI, and then the first content delivery company with Akamai, and then the leader in, in automation of the UiPath. I mean, I've been very fortunate. And I think for me, I always felt that like, I'd look around me and be like, wow, these people went to these universities or they had <laughs> these experiences. And I felt like a kid again, but not like a kid in a candy store, right? But like 
oh man, am I going to be found out? And for me, again, at an individual level, I always committed to myself. I'd be the first in the office. I'll be the last one out. I'll take calls at all hours. I'll fly wherever and whenever to help a customer. I'd spend weeks at a time on the road to try to build a successful business. Yet with perspective now and some time between, there's a cost to all of this if you're not self-aware and you begin to buy into the BS. And oftentimes it's your own shadow work that you have to work out. You have to figure out like what is underlying that. And you know, it wouldn't matter like how many times I got promoted or the pats on the back. I always felt like there was something there that was saying like, they're going to find out, they're going to find out that you're not good enough. And it's super unhealthy. And then when I had kids that you begin to be like, I don't want that transferred onto them. I also saw that when I became a frontline manager and then a leader of leaders and then a president of a region, you have to adapt. You can't continue to, to operate the same way. You know, reputationally, we mentioned robotic. I was literally, people would say, you know, Rick's a machine. Like he just gets stuff done. But when I think about it now, I used to wear that as a badge of honor. I used to think like, oh, people who see that I'm just putting in the work. But with that distance, as I keep talking about, machines can be efficient, yet they're not human. You know, they're not caring. And ultimately that isn't who I want to be. And that's where I needed to take a step back and be like, what's most important are the relationships that I'm able to establish and build. And those are the memories that I want to be able to keep for my family, for the people I, I'm fortunate to work with. And, you know, I don't know about what it's like for you or, or your audience, but while COVID was horrible in so many ways, yet for me, it turned into a forcing function to learn more about myself and to prioritize things that I think are, are more important. You know, my kids, my health, spending time with family and friends. And that's a privilege onto itself. I, and I recognize and know that. But, you know, a mentor of mine could see I needed a course correction. And we were walking, this is probably about nine years ago now, we were walking in Seattle and he said to me, I had one kid and another on the way. And he said, you know, Rick, your kids aren't going to care or remember that you closed a big deal or that you're an executive at Google or UiPath or wherever. They'll remember that you showed up at their school play. You showed up at their football match. That's what they're going to remember you for. You know, yeah, it sounds blindingly obvious, but I can tell you when you're in it, when you're caught up in it, it can be a metaphorical smack in the face. And that's what I have been working on. And when I talk to my friends that are in this business, well, or other businesses, they go through very similar things. I don't know if that's getting to our age or what, but that's what I think about a lot. Yeah, a few minutes ago when you mentioned feeling like a little kid, I had a little chuckle to myself because I always think that my imposter syndrome feels like, did you ever watch that show, Ally McBeal? Yeah. I don't know if you will remember this scene, but there is a scene in Ally McBeal where she's in a like a boardroom full of lawyers and it's her turn to speak. And you know how it would sort of visualize weird things. And she visualized herself shrinking down to the size of a little child with, you know, when your legs dangle off the chair. That's what imposter syndrome feels like to me. I just feel like a silly little girl in a room full of grown-ups. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a hundred percent. And, you know, it's the transference that we as individuals put onto others, but it's also the projection that we allow people to put onto us. And again, I feel like I'm being so obvious, but these are things that happen every day and we're not unique in it yet we feel we are. And I think it's 
I think it's admirable that you and Tiger Hall are, you know, wanting to have these types of conversations because I think a lot of people go through these things and we live in such a fast paced society and now screens are between us and you lose that human touch. And I think you read all these studies now, maybe I'm reading more of them because I have kids that are getting into that age, but you know, loneliness is a massive issue in the world right now. And I think we as the adults, we have to be able to have these conversations and say, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to talk about things that are hard, where you may be struggling and really make sure you're there to help each other. And people don't know unless you talk about it. And yeah, it has to be a safe space. People have to feel comfortable about it and they have to feel levels of trust. And I'm probably a bit different because I'm willing to share this on a podcast. But if I think about what a next chapter is like for me, one of the key things is I absolutely want to continue to help mentor folks, you know, help people not only in their business, but just in their lives in general. It feels good and it feels fulfilling to be able to help with that. Well, that's nice. Quick interruption, just to let you know, this podcast is brought to you by Tiger Hall, the knowledge infrastructure for Fortune 500 firms. Just as I am now, for Tiger Hall, I interview global top business executives and industry experts on topics that help employees and organizations drive change and get ahead. If you're an executive driving large transformational change across your organization, we could help you get that done much faster through the power of knowledge sharing in the flow of work. Check us out at tigerhall.com. I'm trying to imagine you sitting around the boardroom table at Google. You're literally running the company. You, you were feeling imposter syndrome then? Oh, yeah. I ran a very small part of the business in Asia. Remember, when Google Cloud started, when I moved over from AWS, they had a really strong team focused on, at the time, it was called Google for Work. So that was Gmail, Docs, Sheets. And they would sell that to schools. They'd sell that to small, medium businesses and enterprises. There was no Google Cloud platform in Asia and very, very small in other parts of the world. And so with Google specifically, I got to give a ton of credit to the leaders at the time. They're running massive multi-billion dollar lines of business. And they see this upstart where we're getting all of this funding. We're being asked to hire all of these people. They're being told you can't go higher yet. They're the ones are the cash cows and generating all of the the profit for the business, I got to give them credit. They were nothing but welcoming open arms. But I can also understand that like, we were by no means equals, right? They treated me as an equal, but our businesses were not anywhere near equal. There was so much time that I had to spend internally educating folks on why cloud was going to be important, where it was going, the reason why the company was spending this much investment in cloud. And when you fast forward seven, eight years later, it's starting to come true. But these big bets do take that amount of time. So yeah, I would be sitting in this room and listening to these amazing projects that are going on and how they're helping with the Next Billion Users Initiative and helping people get online in remote Indonesia or India. And I'm sitting there like, we're trying to launch a cloud region in you know Hong Kong. And it was just chalk and cheese. But that was one of the nicest things about Google. Folks always pitched in they were always willing to do whatever they could to help out. And they thought beyond themselves. And we were really fortunate. But I totally had imposter syndrome. But do you think this imposter syndrome has hindered your progress in any way? It's a good question. Maybe. And what I mean by that is, I think I would confuse setting a high bar with 
sometimes being a taskmaster when it needed to be more of a soft touch. I know for a fact I didn't always meet the expectations that I had of myself or for my team in certain situations. And so I think that I have evolved and I believe that I've become a better leader, but for sure, I I don't know if it's held me back, but I think that it's made me take stock of the things that are important. Here's a question for you. So you're now obviously very introspective and self-aware and very sort of thoughtful. And obviously we've discussed earlier in your career, you were all about execution, you were more robotic. Was there a, a point in your journey where you suddenly became really reflective and you realized all these things about yourself? Was there a trigger to that? I would say that there was probably a series of significant changes, which I won't go into, but, you know, I needed to take a step back and reevaluate, as I said, like things that are priority for me. And that was, like I said, around my health, around my well-being, around the priorities of making sure that I'm spending quality time with the kids because there are always trade-offs, especially in Asia. You know, for whatever reason, especially U.S., headquartered companies, the folks in Asia end up getting the short end of the stick where, you know, it's calls at one in the morning or at six in the morning, and then you got to work your full day or you've worked a full day. And that's just the expectation. And on one side, I can understand it, but that can put your life in kind of an upside down place if you're not careful. And so for me, I just needed to say, hold up a second. What are the things that are really important to me? And, you know, I've been really hard charging for, you know, nearly 25 years of that. And I just took a step back and said, I need to really set some better guardrails around this. And within that, when the focus on the health, like I've ended up because I'm exercising more, I'm sleeping more consistently and longer and better, and I'm not drinking alcohol, I've Ooh, lost 12 kilos, which is a ton then you get more energy, then you feel better. And then you show up better for your family and friends. Like it all plays together. But you know, when you're younger, you don't think about these things. It's just like if you have an accountant and they're like, oh, you know, you really should save. You don't think about it when you're 25, but when you're 45, you're like, oh yeah, I should have been saving more when I was 25. I'm glad I have become more awake to these things now because I do think it will serve me well, hopefully over the next however much longer I have on this planet. But when you were running at sort of full steam ahead, were you good at taking holidays? Were you good at switching off? No, I was not. And I mean, embarrassingly, if I think about it, like I didn't take the proper amount of paternity. Just I was not a good role model for these things. And these are the things that I don't want by either people that are my friends or people that I, I could help I don't want them to fall into the same type of trap because it's really easy to. There'll always be another meeting you have to go to. There's always another customer that needs your help. But like I said, like my mentor's advice uh, was that like, well, what about the trade-offs of what's home? And that's whether you have kids or not. It's like it, whether you have children or you know you just have a partner. These things you have to do a a, a check in. And people that say like it's easy, good for them, like great. It hasn't been easy for me. And I don't think it's easy for most people. And some of the stuff we see becomes pretty public in some of these meltdowns. You don't want to be a footnote on something like that. At the time, do you think you were making it look easy? (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. But (laughs) I remember I got off a plane in India 
the day had been crazy. And the thing is that Amazon, my boss at the time, used to say that we're going to have the executives from Seattle go with Rick to India because Rick will show them what we have to deal with. And what he meant was, and that would be with Andy Jassy, who's now the CEO of all of Amazon, or Adam Solipsky, who's now the CEO of AWS, or Warner Vogels, who's the CTO. These are all folks that I was very fortunate to spend a lot of time with. They all came with me to India in the earliest days of cloud in Asia in 2010, 2011. And I would do, I would make us both do five, six meetings per day, not at a hotel, like across different places in Mumbai or Delhi or Bangalore. And when you're not used to running at that pace, I mean, by the end of the day, people were just out of it, right? And why I'm saying this is I used to do that three weeks a month and then come back to Singapore for a week and then go back up there. And I used to spend weekends up there. I used to do two to three cities a week. So I get off the elevator. I get to a hotel. I get off the elevator. And this really nice young lady says to me, oh, you know, you look really tired. And I I mean, for whatever reason, that hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, you know, Mm. 31 at the time. I was like, I'm not tired. But if I looked at myself in a mirror, if I look at photos today from back then, I had panda eyes like crazy. Did I make it look easy? Maybe. But I mean, I didn't look great and I probably didn't feel great. And that then has an outcome on how you show up. Yeah. I mean, I have amazing memories of those times. But also, it was a hell of a heavy lift. And would I do it again? I would do it differently. With more balance. You can do a lot with a different approach. You know, I'm not always, I, I was a cynic before about the Tim Ferriss four hour work week. I mean, I, I, I don't know how he's been able to do it. But oh, I think that's a fraud. I don't think anyone believes he actually works only four hours a week. <laughs> I do think that you can have the right level of balance and you have to use it as a forcing function and you have to set the guardrails up front. And if people aren't willing to kind of respect that, then you have to reevaluate. Only you can do that. No one will be able to do it for you. As you know, Rick, I'm asking everyone who comes on this podcast if they can share a few stories, either of limiting beliefs they've had or times where self-doubt has got in the way. We've covered a few things already. Is there anything else you can share? You know, I think that from a limiting beliefs perspective, I think I've shared what makes the most sense for my life. I I think the bigger thing is I would say is, and I would just reemphasize, it's okay to have self-doubt if you're able to understand what it is and you're able to negotiate with it. Where it gets into, you know, leading to anxiety or you are not, you know, you're just feeling a level of like oppression within yourself, then, you know, maybe it's time to, you know, ask for help. And especially as a leader. You know, I think one thing that that I've seen evolve, and I think in a good way in the last 15 plus years where I've been a leader is there's an expectation that you show up in your, your authentic self and you share. And sometimes that's hard for people. Sometimes that's hard for leaders. And being a leader, I'm not expecting crocodile tears over this, but being a leader sometimes can be really lonely. And so it needs to be said that, you know, it's okay to be vulnerable and you know when you're vulnerable your team will surprise you i remember there was a time i got up in front of the entire team for google cloud at our sales kickoff for asia and we were in vegas but it was the asian breakout 
And the team at that point was nearing a thousand people. And I talked a lot about my origin story, about moving 11 times before I was the age of 12, always being the new kid, just kind of trying to draw this thread in with my family story as I shared earlier. And there's a photo that there's a gym at the University of Washington named after my grandfather. And my grandfather passed away the week before my daughter was born. So she never got to meet him. And obviously my son didn't either, but we were able to go in one summer when the school was out and we were able to go in the gym and they were able to play around when they were little. And I've got a photos with them with, you know, his name behind it. And, you know, even talking today, I get choked up about it because, and I got choked up in front of everyone in Vegas. And that's when, for me, the reputation of being a machine started to fall away because people could see that like, there's actually a heart here. And people would say, once I love Google, people would say, you know, we knew you always cared. It just, we just didn't like quite know. And it started to kind of come together when I shared that. And that was a light bulb moment for me. Again, it may sound obvious to folks, but for me, it wasn't. Like I saw myself as like, I needed to lead a certain way. But when I shared that story and I got choked up, people started to see like, oh, okay, you know, he's a human and this is what is important to him. And, you know, I was like, okay, it made me feel better to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So if there are leaders listening to this and they are struggling with loneliness and they haven't quite found their path to working through that, what do you recommend? You know, I mean, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn, but oh. also, I mean, honestly, they, to be perfectly serious, they, there are people guaranteed within their lives that would be willing to help. And what I would encourage anyone, and I spend a lot of time mentoring different folks, and they may not think that that they can't be seen, but like the the false bravado can easily be seen through. And there's something there. Like if you double click on it and you just spend the time with them and truly listen and try to unpack where they're coming from, everyone has their challenges, everyone has their vulnerabilities, and that's okay. That's what makes us human and that's what connects us. And I think that that is something that I'm hopeful about. I'm really hopeful about with this next generation. Like they aren't all about like, you know, I got to make the most money. I got to chase things that are really, quite frankly, maybe unachievable. And they just want to do things that they enjoy with the people they enjoy and that they're having some fun. And so I would just say, if people are struggling, you know, first, make sure you take care of yourself. Second, ask for help. One big thing for me, that I find is a non-negotiable now is sleep. Like I prioritize sleep over everything. I mean, my close friends will make fun of me now, but I oftentimes I'm in bed with a book by 9 p.m. and I couldn't be happier. Um, <laughs> oh, that sounds so dreamy. It's great. I mean, and, but you know what? It allows me to be the best person I can be the next day. And that I can still take calls at 5 a.m., but like that come nighttime, my circadian rhythms are like, man, wouldn't a book sound nice right about now? And so, you know, find your routines that work for you and stick with them. And, you know, make sure that you are really thoughtful about who you spend time with and who you surround yourself with, especially the more successful you get. 
I have to say sleep is something that I've realized in recent years as well. It's just the most important thing for how happy I feel. That's the person that I would recommend. I would love for you guys to be able to speak to. So many of your listeners would know, but I'm a huge uh, fan of Andrew Huberman and the work that he's mm-hmm. done um, and continues to do. I mean, it, obviously he's not just focused on sleep, but across the board, I think he would be amazing for this because I think it's a topic that he would have definite perspectives on, but also would be able to provide some helpful tools for people to be able to work through. He is amazing. Okay. We'll try and get him. I'll say Rick says that you need to come on the podcast. Oh, you don't know who Rick is? Well, who's Rick? (laughs) you have to go and listen to his tiger therapy episode. He is brilliant. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, so then we've got ahead of the wrap up question. All right. Well, look, it's been a treat. I really appreciate it. And obviously a huge fan of you, of Nelly, of Tiger Hall and always available if you need me. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. No, it's so lovely to have you on this podcast and thank you so much for doing this. And I hope you're not feeling too much self-doubt at the end of this. You know, I think it's going to be an ongoing journey. And what I would say is the next chapter for me is going to be continue the self-exploration. I continue to mentor and advise, you know, especially young startups. And then if I get back into the game, it will be something that is really around trying to figure out how to combat the climate crisis with tech. And those are the things that I'm most passionate about. So, you know, stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.